Third, the, the third section is that we are looking at petitions of a more personal nature when we're talking about this, okay? Now, what we are going to do for, for our context is, is just look at the first two today, and then we're going to continue next week and, and read, um, continue on in the Lord's Prayer and look at those personal um, petitions then. But we start out in verse 1. Uh, in, in, in sort of setting up the situation of what happens in the Lord's Prayer, okay? So it says in verse 1, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. So here's the deal. We start off from this position of saying this. They knew they weren't good at talking to God. The disciples, right, these are Jesus' own followers, the people that he has handpicked, they knew they weren't good at talking to God. I feel that way often. I think I've shared many times with y'all that, that sometimes I feel like prayer is the, is the most difficult um, spiritual discipline for me in some ways, right? It's the one that I feel um, the, 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 and sometimes the least connected to God in, okay? And that's a weird thing to say, especially as a pastor, but it's, it's, it, I feel that way a lot of times. I think the disciples are saying the same thing. They're saying, God, we don't, Jesus, we don't know how to pray rightly. Would you teach us to pray? Would you help us to pray? They want to pray to God in a way that is good and right. They want to have the right attitudes when they come to prayer. So here's the thing from the get-go. Do you think that made Jesus happy? Um, I think it did, right? I think um, it's like a child coming to their parents saying, I want to spend more time with you, but I don't, I, 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 you're important to me, and, and I want to spend time with you, but I don't know the best way to do that. I don't know the best context in which to connect to you. And so I think it is an awesome thing that the disciples would say that. It is something that is pleasing to the Lord to say that their hearts were focused on saying, God, I'm not good at this, but I want to be. I want to be in right connection with you when it comes to prayer. And so Jesus teaches them how to pray. And again, he starts with the address. He starts with who we're talking to. And, and, and it's super central um, as to how we understand all this stuff. So in verse 2, he says, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Address God as Father. Matthew tells us to call no man Father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven. You may or may not realize this, but the concept of God being your Father, your personal Father, is pretty new in the history of religions and worldviews and things like that. Nobody else really does that. At least nobody else talks about God in that specific way. Even the Old Testament, God is not referred to as the father of any individual, typically. Rarely is he referred to as the father of, of the world uh, or mankind in some way, in a sense that he is their creator, right? Um, in various places, he is referred to as the father of the nation of Israel, right? The corporate gathered body of, of his people. But God being the father of individuals is, is not really the way that the Bible talks. It doesn't typically talk that way in the Old Testament. Um, what we find when we get to the New Testament, though, right, is that God is the father of Jesus. And because we are in Christ, then God is our father as well. The Bible uses kind of different illustrations for that. We know that, that we are adopted into God's family, so we are his true children, that, that sometimes it talks about the fact that we are the bride of Christ, and therefore we are, we are all sort of the daughter-in-law 
Um, you could say that the, the, the daughter who's been brought into the family um, of God. But the reality is, is this. When, we, when, when Jesus focuses in on this, he says, you are his children. God loves you with a fatherly love. So I've used this illustration before. I think I stole it from Tim Keller, uh, but I'm not positive. But it's the, the, the illustration of, so, so you remember like when um, uh, President Obama had his two daughters um, who were in the White House with him, or, or Donald Trump had his younger son um, in, in the, uh, the White House. So the reality is, is that the president, regardless of, of who the president is, is, is one of the most powerful men in the world. Um, he has incredibly curtailed access, right? You can't get to the president. Even if you're somebody important, you could be the president of another country and, and call the president up and say, I want to talk to the president. And they'd be like, well, he'll get back to you, right? Um, the, the president, um, if, if you tried to get to the president, you would probably be stopped in some way, right? But here's the deal. Those children living in the White House, they can get up in the middle of the night and say, hey, president, they wouldn't call him that, hey, dad, go get me a cup of water. And probably the case is, is that dad is going to get up and get them a cup of water, okay? Not because that child has any kind of power over them, but because of the great love that the father has for his children that he condescends to them, right? He steps down and he meets their needs and he acts in a fatherly way to his children, right? We have the same case in the Bible. Um, is is uh, the, the Matthew chapter 7, it talks about the idea of, of if a son asks you for bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? And he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? So here's the deal. Jesus is focusing in on this idea. He says, is, is God our king? Most certainly, right? Is he our creator? Without question, is he a being whose transcendence is, his existence is beyond our ability to really comprehend? Is all that true? Certainly. But none of those are the way that we address God. That's not the way that we talk to God in prayer. We talk to God. We cry out to God as Abba, Father. And what follows after this is in light of that revelation, in light of that new way of talking to God Almighty, but instead calling him Father, we get these petitions that come after that. We know that prayer, and we talk about this sometimes, that prayer can come in lots of different shapes. We talk about that, that acts uh, the uh, model, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. But what we notice in this passage is that everything that we have here is really a supplication. We're all, all of these are petitions of us asking God for something. Now, the interesting thing is that they all, in some ways, kind of bear connection to those other ways too, those adoration, confession, thanksgiving aspects. But in each of these petitions, we are asking God for something. And so in that first section, these big cosmic things that we are asking of God, these things that are on a universal level as opposed to on a spiritual level, there's two things that we ask of God. We say, God, we ask that your name be hallowed and your kingdom would come. That's the two things that we ask for. Matthew obviously adds that your will be done. But I, I think we'll see that those two things are implicit in, in hallowed be your name and uh, your kingdom come. Okay, so what do they mean? 
What do those two words, those two phrases mean? Hallowed be your name. What does it mean for God's name to be hallowed? Hallowed isn't really a word that we use anymore. But it means holy. It means sanctified. It means set apart and reverenced. All right? Holy indicates how God is different from us. He's pure. He is, he is unique. He is set apart. But then his name, when we talk about hallowed be your name, his name doesn't just indicate what he's called. We're not just talking about the, the Yahweh name or, or any of the other names that we find in uh, the Old Testament, Elohim or Jehovah Jireh or any of those kind of names. We're not just talking about his actual moniker. We are talking about his entire person, his entire being. It's the same way that we would talk to each other and say something like if you said, oh, you shouldn't gossip about somebody because you'll ruin their good name. We're not just saying you ruin the letters that spell out Tim. Or something, right? We're talking about the fact that you are ruining their reputation. You are ruining their character. You are ruining everything that is known to the world and how they are presented in ruining their good name. We are asking that God's name, his reputation, his fame in the world would be hallowed, sanctified, set apart, lifted up as holy. And so again, we are asking, we are asking that God would in the world, that people would recognize and honor him for who he is, that he would be famous. Probably most of you guys, and some of you have been significantly influenced, I think, by, by the passion conferences uh, and uh, uh, the, the passion movement that's, that's in Atlanta, and they have the conferences, they have lots of CDs, a lot of music ministry comes out of passion. Passion sort of theme verse is Isaiah 26.8, oh Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desires of our souls, okay? Your name, your fame in the world is what we want most um, to be seen. I, don't, I think there's probably no better place in the scriptures than Psalm 138 to see this kind of idea played out as the psalmist prays. And he says this, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Right? Psalm 138 is a perfect picture of that concept. Right? What we are asking is that God would be famous. Everybody would know him. Everybody in the universe would see him for who he is. And so the question that I would ask of us of this passage is, what if you really believed that? Like, what if we really lived every day as if God's fame was the most important thing in the world? The most important thing in our lives, the most important thing in our hearts, that our whole lives would be focused on God being seen as glorious and known to the world as famous. I share a lot of times that the illustration um, from from kind of church history of, of Johann Sebastian Bach, of the fact that the, the great composer who every time he finished a work, he would sign that work with three little letters, S-D-G. And that S-D-G stood for Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. All right. And so he saw something. He recognized that he was not just writing music as a job. He was not just writing music as, as something to, to feed his kids. He was not writing it for personal fame um, or wealth. That at the end of the day, every single thing that he did, including his artistic occupation, 
was to bring glory to God. That's supposed to be the attitudes of our hearts too. That's what we are praying to God when we start off saying, hallowed be your name. But that feeds right into the next one because the next petition is that God's kingdom would come. So again, we have to kind of ask that question. Kingdom's not exactly a word that we use in, in, in kind of daily um, talk exactly anymore, but though probably most of us are more familiar with it than we are with hallowed. So what's a kingdom? Well, a kingdom is, is obviously the area of rule. It's the land. It's, it's, the, it's the property um, of, of a king's rule. But it's not just the place that he rules. It's also the rule itself. So if, if, if you're watching some kind of Lord of the Rings type movie or something and you hear somebody say something that, you, that a force is standing against my kingdom, it doesn't just mean that you're standing against the property that I own, but you're standing against my rule, right? You're standing against my authority and power over a place. So here's the weird thing about this passage or something that you, you might think. We're asking that God's kingdom would come. Well, what does God's kingdom include? Where is God's kingdom? Well, the answer is it's everywhere, isn't it? Right? God's kingdom is, is, is all things. God rules over everything. That's his authority. He has control over everything. That's his power. There is no place where God is not in control. There is no place where he does not have power over those things. In, in, in theology, we call that word sovereignty. The idea that God has complete authority, complete power over all things. That is the sovereignty of God. So then here's the question. Is there anything that could ever really stop God from being sovereign? The answer is no, right? He is sovereign. His sovereignty is the reality of things, right? It is the way things are, period. So then again, the question would be to us, then why are we supposed to pray that God's kingdom would come? If God is already in control of all things and sovereign over all things, then why are we asking that God's kingdom would come? His sovereign rule would come. Isn't it already here? Isn't it not really anything? There's not anything that we can really do to stop it. Well, that's true, but, but it's also the reality that while God's kingdom is ultimate, it's unchanging in a temporal, individual, personal kind of context. God is not always ruling in people's lives. He has ultimate authority, ultimate power, but we live in rebellion against God, don't we? Even though ultimately we are still under his, his, his rule and authority. We're disobedient. We live lives that are contrary to that sovereign rule of God. And so here's the deal. When the Bible refers to God's kingdom, there is almost always another element that it is addressing. It's talking about his personal redemptive kingdom. It's not just talking about his sort of kingly authoritative rule of the universe. It's talking about his personal redemptive rule in your life. So we might say that uh, the way um, the, the way it kind of connects to these these other things is we want God to be praised. Made famous in the world, that's hallowed be your name. And we especially want that to be the case, to take place in the lives of the people who obey Jesus. Your kingdom come. So I love the way there's a, a Dutch reformed theologian named Abraham Kuyper who says it this way, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ 
who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. That everything belongs to him. That's a bold statement. Okay, It is a scary statement, honestly, when we think about it. Are you really willing to say, God, I want you to follow you no matter what? Your opinion, your authority, your power in my life um, is ultimate. Knowing the difficulties that come from that, as we've been talking about true discipleship over the last few weeks, right? Knowing that that is countercultural, knowing that that's counterpersonal, even. Asking God and saying, God, rule the world, certainly, but man, rule my heart also. So these two petitions are, are at the core of what should be our ultimate hope and our ultimate focus. Okay? Jesus starts off saying, this is your attitude when you pray to God. This is how you ought to be focused. The first thing, the most important thing, when you talk to God and pray to him. Jesus is teaching us to pray, showing us that our heart should be focused on God's glory and fame and his redemptive rule in, in the heart of man. Okay? And, and, it's, and it's those two realities that bring us back to its connection with this day, to, to Easter Sunday, to Resurrection Sunday. Because here's the deal. We see, um, as, as, as we look at Christianity, man, it has a lot of rules, a lot of teachings, all right? But here's the deal. Those rules and teachings don't sit at the center of the Christian message. We have ceremonies. We have sacraments. But those things are not at the heart of the Christian faith. At the center of Christianity sits two events. And, and really, at the center of Christianity sits the person who is involved in those two events. The Christian faith is about the substitutionary death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus. That sits at the center. Everything else is, is another piece building out from that. Not that they're not important, not that they are not something that we shouldn't focus on, but, but they are not central. The central thing to the Christian faith is the person of Jesus, particularly in his death and resurrection. And that's the connection that I want to make to these events and to the Lord's prayers we're talking today. The reality is, is this. God has already answered this prayer in the most definitive way he can. Or maybe to say, because of what Jesus has already done in his death and resurrection, this prayer now can be answered. That's because the cross of Jesus is where his name is most hallowed, where Jesus is most exalted in the cross. That's because the cross of Jesus is, is the, the place that we look to and say, and what kind of love is this? What kind of sacrifice is this? All throughout history and in church history and in secular history, we see story after story of kings who demand the lives of their subjects, of kings who are willing to sacrifice their people to assure their rule, of kings that will throw um, their people to the wolves functionally um, to, to aggrandize their own situation. Yet what do we see uh, with King Jesus? Jesus lays down his own life for his people. Jesus, um, though we were weak, though we were ungodly, Jesus goes to the cross for us. 
Just as we said a couple weeks ago, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person. That's a rare thing. But for someone to love us so much that they would die for us while we were still sinners, glorious. Nothing like that has ever been the case. The cross is where Jesus' name is hallowed, where it is set apart, where we see that he is different categorically from everybody else, where his name is made famous. That all happens in the cross. Again, Philippians 2, a passage that we come back to, man, sometimes I feel like we come back to it like every three or four weeks, over and over again because it is so central to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name. What name? The name that is above every name, right? Because of Jesus' obedience to the point of the, of the cross, Jesus' name has been lifted up above all other names. It has been hallowed, exalted, set on high, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? Jesus' obedience to the Father, even unto the cross, is the locus, right? It is the nexus of the hallowing of his name. And then it is in the resurrection that Jesus' kingdom is established. Jesus establishes, you could say, the beachhead of the kingdom by defeating the only one and true enemy that we have and the one weapon that he has against us. That weapon, that fearsome weapon that we have no power over is death. And the person that wields that one weapon is Satan. And yet when we get to the the book of Hebrews chapter 2, it says Jesus, by taking on flesh, by dying in our place, he has disarmed Satan. He has rendered Satan powerless. And that one weapon that Satan has of death, he has rendered it powerless. Jesus, on several occasions, referring to himself, talks about the idea where he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's close. Now, in one sense, sense, his kingdom was always there, right? Just like we said a minute ago, God has ruled everything for all of time. It's always been there. But in another sense, it was just arriving. The kingdom of God was just showing up in the person and work of of Jesus Christ. Because that personal redemptive love of Jesus and our personal repentant trust and obedience in Jesus, we were incapable of that before. It wasn't an option until Jesus had come. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, it's because up until that point, you couldn't have experienced the love of God in that way until Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died a perfect death and was risen from the grave for us. Second Timothy says our savior, Jesus Christ has abolished death and he has brought to life an immortality. He has brought He has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's what he has accomplished in his death and resurrection. When we get to the book of Revelation, I'm sort of like going all over the place, right? Because the reality is, is this theme just keeps on coming in everywhere from all over the scriptures, right? The centrality of Jesus' death and resurrection. When we get to the book of Revelation, John has this vision, remember? And so John is, 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 uh, seeing this, this, uh, this vision of, of all kinds of different things. And 
in chapter one, when Jesus approaches him, he sees Jesus for the first time and, and he sees the, all the things we talk about, you know, the light shining from him and, and all the different ways that he describes him. But then Jesus says his name. It's a cool passage. Jesus says his name. Think of all the different things Jesus could have said at that point. Jesus could have called, referred to himself by any number of things that he's done or, or character traits, aspects of his being, all these, these different things. He could have, he could have said anything, but this is how he introduces himself to John. He says, I'm the living one and I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades, right? That is to say what? Is to say that Jesus is identifying himself as saying, my name now is connected to the fact that I have authority over death and hell, that my kingdom has come and that all these things that I'm asking you to pray for in the Lord's prayer, that my name would be hallowed, that my kingdom has come. These things have been achieved in my death and resurrection. So Jesus rules over death. He's proven his power over it. Ultimately, we know that the kingdom of God has indeed come. It is established in Jesus' resurrection. And so we know that Jesus, just as Jesus has been resurrected, so will we be one day. Just as death held him only for a moment, it will only hold us for a moment before we are resurrected to new spiritual life, to new spiritual bodies, to a place where God will tabernacle with his people, he will dwell with his people, that he will set up residence with his people. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things have passed away and he will make all things new. For these words are true and faithful. And so praise be to God. Hallowed be the name of Jesus on this Resurrection Sunday. This is the promise of the borrowed cross and of the empty tomb. This is our hope in Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Father God, we thank that while, thank you that while we were yet sinners, that Christ Jesus has come into the world, that he has taken on flesh. God, that he was obedient and submitted to your will. God, because of the joy set before him, because of his great love for his people, that he submitted, that he, God, stepped into our situation. God stepped into our plight. God, that, that he was betrayed, God, that he was attacked, God, that he was lied about, that he was persecuted, that he was tortured, God, that he was crucified on our behalf. God, we are unworthy of, of such great love, and yet we thank you that Jesus Christ has done these things for us. 
God, even more, we, we thank you for his glorious resurrection. We thank you that God, as noble as his sacrifice would have been, God, the sadness of, of his, of his death, God, the lack of, of knowledge as to whether it had been effective, God, all those things would be up in the air, but instead, three days later, your son rose from the dead. God, that he declared victory. He declared that his mission had been accomplished. God, he declared your favor and our acceptance as children of God. God, we thank you, and we are unworthy of, of the glories of that truth as well. Father, help us to hold these things in our hearts. God, as we go out into the world and as we as we share with people about about uh, the Christian faith, about the way that you have changed our lives. God, help us to do just what this prayer is asking of us. God, to hold these things out in front of us. God, to not immediately um, turn to to um, issues of minutia or even issues of of, of broader um, morality and 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 belief. God, but let us take people to the heart of the Christian message that the Son of God has taken on flesh and come to earth, that he has lived a perfect life in our place, that he has died a perfect death in our place, and that he has been risen from the grave. God, help us to hallow your name. God, and help us to pray for your kingdom to come every day of our lives. We thank you. We praise you. God, we ask these things in the holy and precious, crucified, resurrected, and victorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
Thanks for being here today. It's good to see you. Happy Resurrection Day. I hope you have a great day spending it with family. And and um, as you continue to just reflect on the day, um, remembering the great grace and mercy that we have been shown in Jesus Christ. Uh, on a personal note, I would like to thank you guys for your prayers for me and my family this week. Uh, we kind of had a crazy week, um, which makes sense coming into Easter Sunday, right? Um, we had a crazy week um, with my mom's uh, health issues. Christy's brother had emergency heart surgery. Uh, Christy wrecked her car. And so it was a crazy week for us. Um, but but the, the prayers and kind of uh, texts and, and just sort of the, the different ways that you guys called and, and touched base with us to, to make sure we were doing okay um, meant a lot to me. Christy was making the comment of, of saying um, what a beautiful picture it was to our kids to see the congregation. I mean, there's so many churches in the world where pastors are uh, – have a difficult time with their congregations, right? Um, and, and that takes a toll on families um, sometimes. Um, it is awesome when my children can see the church reaching out to us in love, caring for us, uh, and, and ministering to us. Uh, and so we thank you for that. I appreciate um, all your love and prayers. Um, and so let me uh, close this benediction. Again, have a great day. Um, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.